This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Ethan Rutherford, author of the short story collection, Farthest South. Stories aren't there to tell you how to be in the world. They're there to kind of tell you what it was like to be in the world. We'll be back with Ethan Rutherford in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Ethan Rutherford, author of the short story collections The Peripatetic Coffin and Other Stories and Farthest South. His fiction has appeared in Bomb, Tin House, One Story, The Best American Short Stories, and Plowshares, among others. 
His debut short story collection, The Peripatetic Coffin and Other Stories, was the winner of a Minnesota Book Award, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenblaum Award for First Fiction, and a finalist for the John Leonard Award, among other distinctions. Rutherford teaches creative writing at Trinity College. His new collection, Farthest South, mixes fantasy with reality with a close lens on parenthood. His characters investigate nightmares while balancing their ability to face them. His stories feature a baby born with gills, foxes raising a human child, a man in the throes of his deathbed fever dream, and voyages near and far. We began the discussion with me asking Rutherford about the sensibilities in the stories. So the sensibility of these stories, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I found in there and you can respond and tell me I'm, I'm wrong or right or half right or, you know, didn't read the same <laughs> book you wrote. Um, but I see, I see a writer who's both haunted and obsessed with parenthood, especially new parents. I see a lot of fear uh, in there about losing children, losing babies, hauntings, ghosts, cold places, um, oceans, like deep, deep places and, and that you could sort of get lost in and maybe find different worlds and a lot about storytelling. That's, that's my uh, summation of, of kind of, the big things I saw going on. Yeah, no, that's, that's all in there. And I think that the, you know, the rule of the game is if anybody says something nice about the movie, like, yes, that's, that's exactly what I meant. That's exactly what I was. But in this particular case, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean, what, what happened between the writing of my last book and this book was pretty like I had kids. Um, and I was spending a lot of time thinking about what it meant to be a parent in those early those early years can be so tough and you, to some degree, you sort of lose your mind a little bit. You're sleep deprived. And so the world is already kind of shimmering in this weird sleepless way. And the things that, uh, at the time I was working on a novel that had just sort of slipped my, I just was kind of no longer interested in the things that I thought I was interested in. I'd started the novel before I had kids and uh, once I had kids and I was spending a lot of time, my, my wife had to commute to her job. So most of the week I was doing a lot of the, the sort of the day to day stuff. Um, and I just, you become really interested in what it means to be a parent. And the tension is how do you sort of comfort a kid and welcome them into the world? How do you prepare and how do you sort of prepare them for the world? And those were the those were the tensions and anxieties that were just on my mind. And I just started to write about that experience. Um, and that was kind of, so it was those anxieties that were very much mine that started to inform, um, my writing. And as for storytelling, one of the ways that I found that I was, that I was trying to tell my kids about the world was through stories at night. Um, and you would just talk about the day and you would invent characters and you would have them get into these little adventures. And then at the end of the night, you can't, you can't necessarily, you can't leave them too worried at the end of the night. So you have to sort of find a way to say like, everything's going to be okay. But what ends up happening 
is you just start to find the ways in which where you're kind of not telling them the, the whole story about your own experience in the world, which is that the world can be a dark and troublesome place. There will be experiences that they have that they kind of don't know how to handle that will stick with them, will lodge. Um, and it doesn't mean that the world is nightmarish, but it means that that's how personality is, is formed. Um, and so all of that started to kind of sink into the work. As, as for sort of the ghosts and kind of the nightmarish stuff and um, the deep oceans, and one of the stories is about going down, you know, Arctic exploration, um, going down to the South Pole. Uh, a lot of that is sort of taking my earlier obsessions with sort of loneliness and sort of strangers. Cause I, the, the thing that nobody kind of told me about being a parent is that you're both, in, you're incredibly busy all the time. Um, and you're caretaking, but it also is like really lonely and that kind of in isolating in a strange way, you're kind of isolated from your sense of who you thought you were in the world. You're isolated from other people. Um, and that tension I thought was really interesting and was productive for me uh, in writing. And the other thing that would happen is sometimes we'd be kind of telling these stories. I would be telling the stories to them and they would be kind of prodding me and getting bored or saying, but what about this? And you would just find yourself kind of, you'd find yourself stuck in a room at night. You can't go anywhere. And the only thing then that you have to leave this space, this realm is your imagination. And so I found during these years, it was, it was both to some degree, like incredibly boring and repetitive um, to just the basic caretaking, but it was also incredibly vivid and wild because you're sort of sleep deprived. You're worried about sort of protecting your family, but also letting the world in. Um, and your imagination is just going in overdrive because it doesn't quite have all these different places to go. And I just found that with sleep deprivation, <laughs> um, it was going in all these sort of strange, sort of almost like a fever dream in that way, if that makes sense. Well, that's it's really interesting because I I wanted to ask you a little bit about your sensibility as a writer because as a, for, from, for a listener who's hearing you talk about, you know, being a father and these worries, I mean, they're getting that there's, you know, some ghost story elements and making sure everything's okay. But I don't know if we've gotten quite across that these stories are not like domestic stories. Like when you open these, you're not going to find a very grounded, like Alice Monroe story about domestic life. It's there's there's really fantastical elements. There's fable like elements to these. There's um, they're they're like fairy tales and um, like almost going back to a more primordial sort of storytelling. And I, it just did that come out of the fever dream of being sleepless or is that your sensibility? I mean, I do remember <laughs> some of the stories in your first book were also kind of fantastical. I mean, I think that I would say it to some degree in this way, like I, I haven't changed and I still have that kind of 
sort of strange nightmarish information. And the question that, that animated those first, those early stories was always like, what's the worst thing that could happen to my character at this exact moment? And that kind of provided the juice or the energy to move the story forward. And you kind of find ways to make patterns out of that. Um, and one of the things that happened to me as a parent was that that was still like an animating concern. Like I'm still very much thinking about what sort of what things are kind of lurking beyond what it is that you sort of can't see so you have your life as you think about it but what are the other sort of layers um just outside of a view and i'm always interested in in looking at those things but the question of like what's the worst thing that can happen like when you're when you're a parent you sort of go like uh i don't want to go there. i know what the worst thing that could happen is um it's some harm coming to these kids and i just can't quite make myself go there. So what happened with these stories is that they're, they, I was hoping to sort of get at that kind of quality sort of lost in the woods, going out on these sort of dark adventures and experiencing sort of danger, but also layering them with a little bit of tenderness. And there's also tensions in these stories on a domestic level that fam- the family, Soren and Hannah, who they, they open up the story, the story collection, and they close the story. There are all sorts of tensions and anxieties that they are kind of facing, but it does it doesn't work itself out in an Alice Monroe way. Those anxieties kind of are discharged into this nightmarish zone. But then the new impulse that I had as a human in the world and as a parent, maybe it's just sort of part of getting older, was also trying to show that yes, like that, that's there, that exists. There is in this particular collection, I guess you would frame it as like there are sea monsters and, you know, there's someone, a seal lady could sort of set you up on sort of a nightmarish journey. Um, but there's also a moment at the end of each story, which happens in fairy tales, uh, not the Grimm's fairy tales, but in fairy tales that I remember as a kid, where they go, and then that was just a moment, and I'm going to sort of pull you back up to the surface, right? So I started to think about these stories, and this is another thing about these stories that I found. The way to tell these stories for me became, you're talking about that these are stories about telling stories. And each story, I think, to some degree, is thinking about the ways in which, if you're sort of trapped, what are the ways that imagination can exert pressure on the present frame. So what I liked about the frame story where where parents are telling a story to children is it actually got at the split that I was feeling, which was there's a surface level of existence that we're trying to sort of hold. But then there's also this real submergence and depth that happens. It has to do with those, the degree to which you like, you love these family members so much and you are so afraid of these other things that are lurking in the world and they kind of are down and down in the darkness and so it's the toggle between staying on the surface and then taking a look at what's down sort of in a more submerged zone and then coming back up and then going down and then coming back up and then going down and then eventually those lines, the demarcation between sort of the surface and, and the darker things that are submerged, they just kind of start to blend a little bit. Um, and so what I was interested in these particular stories and doing 
was simply replicating the experience that I had as a parent. And so my hope is that as people read these stories, it's not necessarily that these are stories that are trying to tell them like how to be in the world, but they're stories that are trying to push across the experience of moving through the world in this particular way. So you were talking about submergence, and I'm curious, what is the moment of submergence do you think does for a story? And are there any techniques you use to get there? I mean, it could be as simple as going into maybe a story that a parent is telling a child, but is there more about that that you want to share? That's a really wonderful question. And the only way that I've kind of come to think about that sense of submergent, it just ha- it has to do more with depth. You're thinking about sort of like a downward motion, if that, if that makes sense at all. And the only way that I know how to sort of access that as a writer is, is to kind of keep in mind that question of like, what is the worst thing that could happen? Um, and just essentially saying like, what if, what if, what if, um, and allow those things into a particular story. And there were a couple of these stories that didn't have the frame of somebody actually telling the story and the only, and the story existed only as the story itself. So in the story fable, it was a story about two foxes who find a human child and they're breaking sort of all sorts of fable like rules about bringing a human child into their uh, little den. And I had this story written in that particular way with no framework around it. And it just seemed, it just didn't seem right. It seemed sort of all, it seemed it was like a little bit too far outside of experience, too far into the fable realm. And so I didn't know what to do with it. And then suddenly the question was, what happens if this is a story that somebody is actually telling and that becomes part of the story itself um, in order to show something to um, the person that the story is being told to? Um, So that sense of submergence for me just came about by saying yes to opening various doors and what you're talking about like with using um the the idea of a fable and using the idea of a fairy tale it's it's wonderful sort of non-logic that can exist in fables and fairy tales right you take a bite of an apple and suddenly you turn into like a donkey or something like that um which is totally delightful when you're a kid but if you put a little bit of pressure on it um you can move it it's not maybe it's not sort of like a donkey but maybe it's For example, in um, Ghost Story, it's a woman who looks like a seal who is here to kind of tell you something that is upsetting about your life, which is that eventually everything that you love is going to disappear. Um, So the moves that I saw in the stories that I was reading and talking to my kids about, they they, they never sort of really put people in danger in those stories. And the question for here was like, well, what if these stories did include a little bit of adult danger and, and sort of had, were orbiting around adult concerns um, and the kinds of things that you would think about if you were a parent rather than a child. Let's talk a little bit about Fable. It reminded me a little bit of Raymond Carver, what we talk about when we talk about love. Oh, yeah, great. Because um, there's people at a dinner party 
telling a story. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Which it's a story about telling stories or a story about talking. Yeah, in the damage that kind of, in essentially what happens when you have a conversation and somebody says something that you actually can't take back. It's a sort of a one way, a one way gate, as Charles Baxter would say. Yeah, and it's not that there was something that. Um, these people said that they couldn't take back, although there was tension in the people at the dinner party for sure. And um, the story did affect what happened at the end between the people there. In the fable itself, I think one of the questions it was asking was, can you have too much happiness? Yeah, that's so I love Raymond Carver and I love that particular story, although I haven't read it for a while. Um, one of the things actually that moving into that, the zone of somebody telling the story and giving these, having this sort of occur in the fable like spot is that it just allowed the concerns that I actually wanted that were on my mind as, uh, a parent living in sort of this very kind of placid domestic sphere, um, it allowed those questions directly into the story in a little bit more of a superheated way, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and the story, just a little bit of background. So the story, as you mentioned, there's these two foxes. They're they're living in the woods and they really shouldn't cross over into the human world. But they can't have a child and they're very sad. So the the male fox, the father, eventual father, goes and, and steals a human baby. So, I mean, not only did he steal a baby, but he crossed into the human world, which he's not supposed to do. And he never tells the wife that that's how he got the baby. She thinks it was abandoned. And it just fills them, like having this child fills them. And he has um, a little fox suit that the kid wears if they go out in into the woods so people will know they haven't crossed the boundaries. There's an evil presence, um, danger lurking because a wolf is sort of the arbiter of like you of the law, I guess that you can't really cross into worlds and he had killed Fox's father. And so that's the danger looming, but it's also like the secrets that, that are kept and that the wife is like everything, single dream she has, has been fulfilled, but she also doesn't know that on the other side of the woods is a mother who is mourning and inconsolable. I love that you sort of, that you picked up on that. So the horror to me of that particular story is the secret that there is the secret that um, the father is keeping from the mother. That essentially all of their happiness um, has come at a cost, and he's just waiting for that to come out um, and to sort of have the whole house of cards fall down. One of one of the things that. I found when I was talking to my kids, and then I realized that we do this when you're talking to everybody, uh, or that I do it. I mean, perhaps we're, perhaps not everybody does this. Perhaps other people have more direct access to what their emotions and actually are. But is that you kind of use stories to talk about the things that you can't find other ways to talk about. Um, things that are perhaps sort of unsaid or that are uncomfortable to talk about. If you put a, if you put a story around it, you actually can sort of address those things. Um, and so in this particular story in Fable, 
one of the things that is being brought to the couple's attention, the couple who's listening to this story, is that there is such a thing as too much happiness, and that if it announces itself in a way that is a little bit too self-satisfied and a little bit too smug, there's always something that can kind of come and snatch it away. Um, and I think that that's the horror that they leave the story with, is that they see something about the way that they've been operating in the world that they didn't see before because of this story. There's also this idea of false happiness. I mean, the, the mother fox never knew it was false happiness, but maybe there's an inevitability when it's gained, when that kind of happiness is gained in an unscrupulous way. Like there's still impact even when you, you don't know. I think that's a lovely observation. I mean, I think that one of the other things is moving through this, this whole collection, in addition to just thinking about how to, how to interact with sort of children and, and raise them and what it means to be a good parent, the idea of protection, the idea of tenderness and comfort and all of those things. The other sort of stress I think that is overlaying this has to do with parental stress and the stress between the sort of the mother, ma, mothers and fathers or um, the people who are tasked with the caretaking and the amount of stress that that is put on them. And I, I was, I was <laughs> talking to somebody else who were just like, so to what extent are all these stories about divorce? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like that's, they're not, but of course they are. Like there's the amount of pressure that people face when you are sort of a new family that's sort of a constant refrain. Like, are we going to make it through this? What's it going to take to move through this phase of our life and to work as a team? Um, and one of the concerns that also, this operates actually in the other story, in the story Holiday. One of the things that the narrator of Holiday kind of comes to realize is that to what extent do you sort of need to be a mercenary um, to in order to bring that happiness into your own house to what degree are you willing to make other people um uncomfortable to what degree are you willing to cause pain in others so that you uh don't experience that own pain yourself um and i think it also becomes interesting when that moves it's not just outside of the family sphere Right where it's not just other people or or people that you don't know, which I think is ethically troubling anyway. But when it moves into the family sphere, um, so to what degree is anybody sort of entitled to happiness, and what are you willing to do to try to make that happen, and how are you going to screw that up? Yeah, I wanted to talk about holiday because it seemed. Um when I read it, I was like, hmm, I think there's elements of, of Ethan in here. It's about a couple that are just having a hard time. They don't, they're broke. It's cold where they are um, in <laughs> Minnesota. And they decide to go on a holiday in the winter to the English seaside, which I was like, well, why not Barbados or something? But um, <laughs> they go to another cold place, but not not as cold. And they stay in, in a in a small hotel. And the wife has these nightmares or almost waking nightmares that there's a man in black at her bed. 
and she sees these things in in the middle of the night and while they're there the owner of the hotel who's maybe going a little bit senile also has has an impact on them and their relationship and they they're just in this sort of liminal space where they're wondering what's next in their life should they have a child um the 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 man his book drifted out of reach for him and they're just they're having a really nice time the wife also reveals something to him that she had never told him before and so maybe it's the power of of letting go of secrets the man steals something from the owner of the hotel and somehow the theft of this thing led to them having a child, at least in, in my reading of it. And one of the things you say in there was that every story has a limit. A lot of these stories, there's sort of these berserk elements, but that sense of seeing me in this, it's a very personal collection. I mean, everything in here, they're the things that I sort of do obsess about. You know, to one of the answers to this is none of this happened, but it's all true if that makes sense. Um, and that story in particular, and I think that all of the other stories, they're thinking about power, little shifts in power. I was just at a reading with the writer Lauren Groff, who I think is amazing. And she said something about dialogue that really distilled dialogue for me. And dialogue is telling stories to somebody else. But she said that you just have to remember that all dialogue is power. Um, it's about power and these small shifts. And somebody always wants something. There's there's a power in disclosing something. There's a power in revealing a secret. And there's power in keeping a secret. And what I was interested in in that particular story were the ways in which those disclosing these secrets to one another that you hadn't sort of told before in the sense of closeness that you're you're operating in an attempt to sort of get closer to each other. But as you are doing this, you're kind of shifting the balance of power and perhaps getting further and further apart. And at the end of the story, when he steals from this, the guy who owns the hotel that they're staying at, who has kind of caused them some real consternation by predicting that they will encounter sort of only sadness, he... It's an attempt to kind of just shift that power balance to essentially where he's thinking, I, I don't know what I can do about this particular thing, but what I can do is I can make a secret and I can keep it. And that essentially is the hinge of that particular piece. Um, he does do it and he says, this is something that I can do and I'm not going to, and I'm going to bring this sort of secret back into my marriage and I'm going to then even the field a little bit. So... With that particular story, it, it's one of those sort of weird things where you go like, that. it's the most clearly autobiographical. Like I lived in Minnesota. I remember clearly the bleakness of those winters. And I also remember sort of clearly what it was like. With my, I, I should also say my wife, we're like, we're not divorced. We, like, <laughs> we made it through. But we, learned, but we learned so much about who we are as sort of as, as people and sort of as teammates kind of working together. Um, <clears throat> that you kind of, we sort of didn't really understand who we were in the world <clears throat> until we were sort of under this intense pressure of trying to raise kids and think about what that meant. Um, and so that's what that story is trying to get at is that you, you said it's a liminal space story. 
And that's exactly what it was. We'd made a decision to change our life, and this is the period in which that decision was kind of before it sort of touched down, um, before it actually obtained what it was like um, in those sort of small shifts of power. Did you want to say anything more about that sentiment that every story has a limit? The idea that every story has a limit, I mean, I think that to some degree, sometimes it's just time to shut up, that stories can't explain everything about the world. And I think that to some degree, that was me talking to myself and trying to remind myself what it is that stories can do and should do, which is for me in this particular collection, is that they can they can transfer an emotional experience and then it's up to the reader to kind of take that and fit that into their lives as well. And the limit that is, that I think that a story has is the moment that a story begins to kind of know itself a little bit too well and begins to have a moral. That's where for me, the limit is that stories aren't there to tell you, how to be in the world. They're there to kind of tell you what it was like to be in the world. And then as the reader, you hopefully kind of continue that conversation. And that's, at least that's been my experience. The literature that I love is the literature that has made me feel sort of like very deeply in these very unresolved ways where you, you put a book down and you go like, why am I weeping? And you go walk downstairs and someone goes like, why are you weeping? And you're like, I, I honestly have no idea, but I feel somehow kind of returned to my own experience of the world. And so I think that the limit of stories in that particular, very particular instance, the important thing was for his partner to talk about an experience that meant a lot, that was unresolved, and to just be there to receive it. I wanted to ask you, in the very first story, it's called Ghost Story. It takes place in Alaska. It's um, the same couple that appear again and again they're they're telling stories and um the father is telling a story to his two boys about the childhood of another boy who's very similar to him who goes to Alaska to fish and you just have a line in there where he says um he's he's basically visiting his father who left after his parents divorced wasn't very connected to him it has um a new woman in his life that really didn't appreciate that the son was coming mostly because the father didn't tell him he's not a great communicator and the and the son is just trying to please the father and and find connection to him and you have a line in there that says i felt like i was being treated like a man for the first time in my life it had everything to do with silence and i'm just <laughs> curious about that line about what it might feel like to be an adolescent boy and have silence be what makes you feel like you're growing up and also the idea of silence as as a storyteller oh that's a wonderful question you import your own experience into these stories as much as you sort of can and and that's it's just a reflection of of moments that i felt i remember when when i was growing up I have a wonderful family. Everybody's great. Everybody gets along. But when there's four, there I have a sister. And when there were four of us, there was just always something happening and it was always sort of moving. And whenever I would go on a camping trip with my dad, it would just be quiet. And we would just sit and we would just, we wouldn't really even talk. Um, and there was something about that that I just really treasured. 
And I don't entirely sort of know why, except that that's, that registered to me as a kid, that there was something about stillness and silence that allowing that into your life is part of growing up. And that, in fact, it always registered to me as a form of respect from my dad to just sit there and kind of just do something or just be present. We'd always be doing something, chopping wood or something like that, fishing. And I just, I love those moments. As far as silence and stillness goes, generally in fiction, it's one of the things that I'm most, I think, obsessed about in trying to find ways into my own work, which I don't think that my work is is busy necessarily, but I like those patches where the action stops and description just sort of suffuses those things. It's almost as if the mind can kind of rest. It's one of the things I love about the illustrations as well. And so I've become really interested in a writer in terms of thinking about busyness and stillness, busyness and stillness and busyness and stillness and kind of like working on those particular patterns. Um, And for me, the submergence is stillness and the surface is busyness. So the title story, Farthest South, it takes place in the South Pole and it's like a grandson telling the story of his grandfather. There's definitely surreal elements to it. The grandfather is on an expedition with a bunch of children. It's an educational expedition, but it's kind of gone out of his control. He's sick and coughing up blood, but doesn't want anyone to know. His, his faithful companion is named Franklin, and he's a penguin. They find a dead body. They are too far, they're like off of their time frame, their schedule, so they get too far into like the polar night and the polar winter to achieve their goal or get back. So they're kind of stuck in this space where they have to make difficult decisions about how they're going to nourish themselves. Eventually the children leave and go off on their own and and. The, the main character, the grandfather, is left with one boy who wasn't allowed to leave with them and the penguin. At the same time, he's, he's kind of hallucinating these scary images that come to him, these heads. We find out that he was likely abused by a cousin. And it goes into this sort of fantastical place where he's sick for several months and then wakes up on the sled where they're pulling him. And he also goes back and forth between his wife. I'm not sure if it's his ex-wife or just a wife where he was the biggest sorrow in his in her life because he was always choosing expeditions over her. And it seems like sort of a reckoning towards the end of the life and where he really wants to be, where he can be in his imagination and where he is physically. Farthest South is a play on Farthest North, which is a famous book, exploration book uh, by Friedrich Nansen. And the original version of this story was just sort of straight ahead telling me, like, what if Friedhoff Nansen had actually decided to try to do a doomed expedition to the South Pole? And I just thought, I was like, oh, that's great. That's a great way to spend my time trying to sort of write that. There's a wonderful memoir about sort of being down there called The Worst Journey in the World, which I think is, I'm sorry that that title is taken. That would be a great title for one of my stories. And so the character in the story was Friedhoff Nansen, and then it switched to the explorer in just kind of a nameless 
figure sort of going through and having this kind of destructive, this really sort of terrible expedition. And it just, there was nothing to sort of plug into. And then there was one day where I just was like, this, this story isn't working. It needs, it, it, it needs sort of a portal into the personal. And I just put my grandfather as the main character's name. My grandfather's a great person, but it was just imagining what happens. And suddenly the story just kind of took charge and I sort of knew where that story needed to go. And it's what, I, what that story is sort of working out is, I think, the cost of, like, to what extent are you willing to stick with an idea even when you are shown over and over and over again that that idea isn't quite perhaps the most generous way to be in the world. And so he's dragging everybody across the ice and just sort of losing people along the way. And it ends up fatal to him. The other thing that was going on in my mind is I was, I was thinking about somebody on their deathbed and constantly sort of being visited by family. And I've had this sort of strange experience. I've, I've been really lucky that I haven't known too many people who've had sort of long drawn out end of life death scenarios. The few people that I have known who have been encountering that particular stage of their own lives, the end of their lives, there's, there was a moment and I was always shocked by it. And I thought it was really upsetting was where they just, it's sort of like realized that they were just kind of dying animals and the generosity that one would want to extend to loved ones and family members and everybody who sort of had been there for them. It just wasn't available to them. And there was a meanness that showed, showed up once the body started to deteriorate. And I'd always sort of imagined that when I died, it would be this sort of like really wonderful thing. And I would just be like on a bed and just be like, and you were amazing. And you were amazing. And you, do you remember that one time you were just there for me? And it really meant a lot. And here's one piece of wisdom that I would sort of have. And I was shocked when I encountered people who, where that wasn't the response that they had to their own impending death. And that's naivete on my part. But that was one of the things that I was getting, trying to sort of also import. And here, there's a version of the story where the grandfather is actually just at the very sort of end stages of his life. And this is where his mind is going. And the floating heads are everybody sort of coming in to kind of check on him, to give him advice, to try to comfort him. And he's just rejecting all of it as he goes along looking for that one sort of farthest south point that he thinks is going to make him happy and content um, and at peace with himself. I don't know what order you wrote these stories or how over how much time, but I know you had started a novel that you, you put aside and finished this collection. And I'm wondering if you learned anything about writing or about yourself between the time you started this collection and the end. One of the great Raymond Carver quotes that I just that I always love, it, where he goes like, "What good is insight? It just makes everything worse." And to some degree, I I sort of feel like I don't have a whole lot of insight on that particular process. As a writer, I just sort of say, I don't know why I do what I do. I don't have a lot of insight in terms of my growth sort of as a person, but I can talk about the pain of of understanding the moment where that novel that I thought was really incredible. And I was really plugged into it, but that just sort of, it fell down on me. And it was something that at first I, I thought of was sort of a real personal failing. 
and I think that the only thing that kind of moved me through that was you sort of putting that aside and then just being like, well, I'm no longer interested in that novel. I can't seem to will that novel into existence anymore. So I, I'm just going to put it aside for now and start to write about the things that are obsessing me and try to have fun and try to find the joy in creation again. And these are the stories that popped out of it. And they're dark stories and they're nightmarish and there's sort of all these kinds of things are lurking in the background. But they're also laced through kind of like a tenderness and sort of a, an impulse at the end of each story towards sort of rescue. So what I feel like I've learned about myself as a writer and I think particularly over this last year, which has been so, well, the last four years, which have just been a hellhole, but this last year in particular, where it does feel like the world is really sort of, in a lot of ways, everything has sort of changed. It does, and there were times over this last year where it just felt like everything was right at the windows. And if you just open the window, calamity would sort of come in, is to find the joy in creation, to only work on the stories and the work that actually brings you joy as you're making them. It was a long road and a long lesson to learn for this particular book, but I feel joyful about it now. And I'll forget it tomorrow. And tomorrow I'll have a writing day where I go like, you, I, I'm gonna go back to school. I'm gonna, I'm gonna study econ this time. Um, and really sort of try to change my life. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer? With this particular book, there's a short novel that, I loved and I read it right in sort of when I was deep in the midnight spot of my other book kind of collapsing um, that really I that sort of showed me the way and just kind of moved me into thinking about stories in a different direction. And it's a sh really short novel because at that time I could only read short novels. I love short novels. Um, but it's called Rock Crystal by Adelbart Stifter. And it's put out by the New York Review of Books. Um, it was written a long time ago and it's translated by Marianne Moore. And the, what it what it taught me is it, it's a it's an incredibly simple story. It's a story about children who on Christmas, they go from one village and they traverse this huge mountain range to see their grandmother. And then um, they get sent home. And on the way home, they get stuck in this incredible storm. And it seems like all is lost. Um, but then at the end of the story, they get rescued. And the whole story is just this slow journey of these children experiencing that sense of for the very first time in their life, they've become lost and things may not sort of turn out the way that they wanted them to. What I love about the story though, is that Stifter um, manages to rescue them and they do make it down at the end of the day. They do get rescued and you have a sense that sort of life goes on, but um, something sort of dark has entered into the picture and you know that it's going to sort of impact them forever. I just love the way that he writes and he writes about stillness and using kind of, uh, he's an incredible nature writer and he renders the world that they're moving through in such an incredible way. So what I'm, I'm going to read just these like just partial, I've pulled out some paragraphs rather than reading sort of a whole um, section. Um, and these are just pieces that I love that get at stillness and get at that sense of um, children who are sort of working through what actually is kind of happening to them. So one winter, the day before Christmas, when in the valley of Gashad early dawn had broadened into day, a fake clear weather haze 
overspread the sky so that the sun creeping up in the southeast could be seen only as an indistinct reddish ball. Furthermore, the air was mild, almost warm in the valley, and even in the upper reaches of the sky is indicated by the unchanging forms of the motionless clouds. Moving a little bit further, the children walked on more briskly, and Santa was delighted whenever she caught a falling flake on the sleeve of her dark coat, and it did not melt for a long time. So then, as they start to get a little bit more lost, they stood still, but heard nothing. They stood a little longer, but there was nothing to be heard, not a single sound, not the faintest except their breath. Indeed, in the stillness reigning, it was as if they could hear the snow falling on their very eyelashes. Their grandmother's prediction had not come true. The wind had not risen. And what was rare for these regions, not a breath stirred overhead anywhere. A little bit later. As far as they could see in the dusk, glimmering snow lay upon everything, separate tiny facets scintillating curiously here and there, as if, after absorbing the light all day, they were now reflecting it again. Um, and then this is after when things are getting a little bit more bleak and night has fallen um, and the snow all around them has come. The ground all about lay bright in the starlight, but they saw no valley, nothing familiar. Nothing was to be seen anywhere but whiteness. All was pure white. Only a somber horn, a somber head, a somber arm was discernible, looming up at this point uh, of that from the shimmering waste. The moon was nowhere to be seen. Perhaps it had gone down early with the sun or not risen at all. And then this is the moment right before they are rescued. A gigantic blood-red disc climbed the heavens above the skyline, and at the same instant the snow all around flushed as though bestrewn with thousands of roses. Summits and horns cast a long, faint, greenish shadows across the snowfields. We talked earlier about stillness, and one of the things that I love about this particular short novel is how still it is, and yet sort of how energetic and energized um, the writing is. It's just a beautiful, quiet book. And what I loved about this book and what it did show me is that you can rescue your characters sort of from danger, and the story can still have kind of that darkness sort of throbbing and, and that kind of moves through the rest of it. Because like, obviously they've been rescued and everybody's happy, but there is some sense that danger has now entered the picture and is going to reverberate for the rest of the lives of these children. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes. So let me just, I'll just read the beginning of Far the South, um, which is the story that I talked about. And what, this one underwent a lot of changes until finally um, the character became um, my grandfather. So farther south. Each day he wakes to cold light, dark waves, and a shifting horizon line, the flap of canvas sails, the creak of a keeling ship. There has been nothing else for weeks. He's ill and cannot get comfortable. His eyes are deep blue, piercing, red-rimmed, expressively empty, and they've refused to adjust to the gloom of his cabin. Below deck, there is only darkness, but topside, he knows, there is limitless white light. He hauls himself up from the aft companionway and from the deck looks at the ice shelf ahead of him. It rises from the ocean like a set of giant's teeth. You are where you are, he thinks. 
and his heart leaps, settles, flattens out. Good morning. At his side stands an emperor penguin, cheerful companion, loyal friend. My grandfather has named him Franklin after one of his favorite dogs from home. When he waddles across the deck, he reminds my grandfather of a black and white channel buoy that bobbed near his home cove when he was a child. Shall I tell the children we've arrived, Franklin asks. Not yet, says my grandfather. A thought forms in his skull and evaporates. The ship dips with the swell, and he steadies himself against the roll. His mind is shorting out. He thinks the sea is like, is like, it's like the sea. A bolt of freezing sea wind bores an acid tunnel to the back of his throat. He coughs into a handkerchief, blood. On second thought, he says, yes. Do you want to share why that was hard or tricky? I had this story and it was in just such different forms. First it was Friedhoff Nansen and then it was um, The Explorer. And I had no idea sort of what the story necessarily was. Um, but I always had the beginning of somebody waking up and then coming up to see the ice shelf ahead of them. And it was only when the grandfather, when the character became my grandfather, which was after about maybe like 30,000 different drafts, that something clicked in me and it showed me the way into the story. And the children who had always sort of been there then became versions of his children. And the, the penguin who was there was a penguin, but was also sort of this guiding sort of spirit for him. And so all of the stuff that seemed like really outlandish at first and kind of felt like it was untethered, suddenly when it was a story about uh, my grandfather, the character of my grandfather, started to attach itself sort of personally. And it was just a moment as a writer when I was like, oh, okay, I, I know what this is. I know what I need to do now and what this story is actually interested in. And so it's one of the few stories in here where it was just, there were these three or four different stories that were kind of orbiting each other and nothing was kind of obtaining on the page. And then they just collided and suddenly the story was made. Where do you write? I used to be a coffee shop writer. I love that sound of uh, just, you know, forks and spoons and people talking. You can listen in on sort of like first dates and all that stuff. And then you can just kind of tune it out. But that background noise was really important for me. But we can't do that, you know, now during the pandemic. You can't just go sit in a coffee shop. Um, so I now just write early in the morning in a dark little chair before everybody gets up um, in my house. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I run. <laughs> I run as far away as I can from writing. No, I've started. Um, one of the things that seems very important to me in, in something that a writing teacher of mine said is that there's sometimes the most important writing you do is actually not writing. And what I found with um, my own work is that if you actually sort of leave the desk and for me, it's going on a run, you actually work out those problems that you are, that are nodding at you at the desk. Um, and so uh, going for a run has actually been something that is sort of away from writing that I actually found incredibly productive. You get exhausted and you, nothing can reach you except what's in your mind. Um, and so that's something that I've started to do. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have two friends that I've shown my work to since we were um, just starting out in, you know, in the younger days. Um, my friend Paul Yoon, who's an incredible writer, um, uh, whose book Run Me to Earth just came out this year. We've exchanged work since we were just out of college. Um, 
and then another friend of mine, Matt Burgess, who I met at the University of Minnesota in an MFA program. And these are just first readers. They just they keep you honest. They go, yeah, that there's something there. There's something missing, and send you back to the work. And then when it seems like the drafts have kind of reached the point where they're ready to kind of be seen by more people, um, I send them over to Sarah Burns, who's my agent, who is really great at telling me what's not working. And I really, I deeply appreciate that. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, by feeling terrible about myself for months and months and months on end. And then you just let that feeling kind of like wash over you and you realize that if you still return to the work after rejection, that it actually is fuel for the work and is kind of something that allows you to, you tell yourself, you're like, I'm going to do better. And it's not necessarily a competitive instinct where you go, I'm going to show them. But that sense of sending things out in the world and not having it received in the way that you had hoped, I've come to think about it now, and I didn't used to think about that, is just it's more information about your own work and you can then use that to to return to the work so but i'm not going to pretend that i like rejection i hate it it makes me feel sick for days it's part of any kind of creation and not everyone's going to like what you do um so you just i've gotten better at just absorbing it <laughs> and then going for a long run and then coming back to the desk and what is your favorite word so I was thinking about this a lot, and I realized that a lot of my favorite words are actually words that I don't know how to pronounce. So I'm not going to say them on the podcast where I actually have to pronounce them, even though I don't feel bad. Somebody once said to me that you you should never make someone feel bad for not knowing how to pronounce a word because it just means that they've, they've read it and have never sort of actually said it. Um, but I love um, nouns of assemblage, um, collective nouns. And I was working on I, the book that I'm working on now is a novel, and there are a lot of birds in it. So I was just doing research and stumbled on the nouns of assemblage for birds. And I think we know like a wisdom of owls, like an unkindness of ravens. But the one that I really love is uh, that I that I just found recently is for a grouping of wrens. You call it a chime of wrens, which I just think is so beautiful and musical. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, Mitzi, it was great. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to go through the stories like this. I loved it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Ethan Rutherford, author of the short story collection, Farthest South. If you like today's show, check out my first interview with Ethan Rutherford on his short story collection, The Peripatetic Coffin and Other Stories. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with S. Kirk Walsh, Joshua Henkin, Christine Mangan, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. 
Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.